0: O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but you, them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my God, O my King, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread on those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to, our, to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us in the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love.
1: Therese, uh, she is the actual woman behind Beethoven's most popular piano piece, Für Elise. And I always enjoyed listening to the song. It has a beautiful flow to it. But then I learned the true story behind the song. Beethoven actually wrote the song in courting Therese, a woman named Therese. And at some point, Beethoven's handwriting, I guess it was messy, (laughs) it was misread. And so Therese looked like Elise. So the song became Für Elise. But the story gets sadder beyond a typo title. Beethoven wanted to marry Therese. And so he wrote this song to try to woo her heart, to to show that he's worthy to be married, that he can romance her, I guess, the rest of her life. But sadly, she said no, right? After I learned the backstory, the melodies and notes sounded different to me, a new appreciation for the song. And in some ways, it's similar with the Psalms. The Psalms are the songs and prayers of God's people. And so recall from last week, that our working definition of the Psalms is the prayer book of God's people who are striving to be faithful to God's teaching while waiting for Jesus Christ's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. You might imagine Beethoven, I don't know how his married life, his love life turned out, but while he was still single playing that song, all the emotions that it must have stirred up And in similar ways, God has left us the Psalms to find some comfort, confidence, faith, just the whole spectrum of emotion as we long for Jesus to return. One commentator aptly says similarly, but in different words, this whole notion, the definition of the Psalms, they are poems for exiles who are learning to live by God's wisdom and to seek God's deliverance in the world. Now, did you know that the Psalms are organized into five books? Because at certain Psalms, there's five endings that repeat. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let Israel say amen. And that phrase repeats five times at key points. And so we divide the 150 entire collection corpus of Psalms into five books. And so last week, we kicked off with Book 1, but from Psalm 2, because Psalm 1 we had done earlier, a previous summer. And Book 1's main theme is a call to covenant faithfulness. The whole theme of those first uh, 41 books. It's a call for God's people, like a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband, to be faithful in covenant. And so each week, we'll rotate between one of the books, so that we get some a good variety and a good sort of overall sense of the the flow of the, the story of the psalms that we're to understand and enter as god's people and so this week we're on book two next week will be book three then book four then book five and then back to book one and we're going to rotate faithfully over the next however many summers it takes to get through all the psalms and so today we look at Psalm 44, which is actually the, sec- uh, sorry, the third psalm in Book 2, but Colin, one of our elders, will cover Psalms 42 and 43 uh, later uh, during the summer, which in Hebrew are, are one unit. So Book Two's main theme, whereas Book 1 was a call to God's people to covenant faithfulness, Book Two's main theme is a hope for the future reign, a hope. It's really stoking the hope that God will send his Messiah and there will be a reign of his good and perfect kingdom. So turning our attention to Psalm 44, it's my prayer then that our hearts might cry out to God by faith in response to Psalm 44 with words something like this, a prayer something like this. Lord, you are in control, past, present, and future. That needs to be a pillar, a pillar thought, a pillar tenet, a pillar assumption for the Christ follower. And it brings so much comfort and strength if you can say by faith, Lord, you are in control, past, present, and future. Now, here's a quick Father's Day application. Dads, for us to be the dads, the best dads we can be, we need to trust that God Almighty is truly, surely, And compassionately in control of the past present and future your past your children's past your present your family's future that God is in control now scripture and Jesus doesn't only call us to faith but faith without works is dead and so it's my prayer as well that we might overflow out of faith into a good work a real change in our lives in some manner as this so Believing by faith you're in control, past, present, and future, when I suffer, help me to trust your sovereign grace. A big theme, if you had to summarize today's psalm, it's basically when you're confused in your suffering. Where is God when you're confused in your suffering? I don't know if you caught that when we read it, but I'll draw out more of that um, if you didn't catch it. The psalmist Day sings and prays about God's, what theologians call, sovereign grace. We talk about, there's two parts to that, God's sovereign grace. We're combining two of God's important attributes. His sovereignty being in complete control and his graciousness, his kindness, his mercy, his compassion, his undeserved love. And we see God melding two of these important characteristics into a thrilling truth, as one commentator says, to give us a glimpse into the mind and heart of our great God. The sovereignty of God is, as I said, his total control, past, present, future. Nothing happens beyond his knowledge and control. And the grace of God is his unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness toward those who have not earned it, meaning... What a wonder that God sovereignly chooses to show kindness to his people. And this psalm in particular is precious to believers because it gives us permission to be confused by how God's sovereign grace is working itself out in our lives. Specifically, Psalm 44 gives us permission to be confused about the the suffering in our lives. So for the rest of our time meditating on today's scripture, I wanna ask, how does the psalmist teach me to pray when I'm wondering why I'm suffering? I wanna draw out three things from the psalm. There's so much there, but just three things. First, recount God's past sovereign grace. Feel intimately safe in God's present sovereign grace. You can see where this is going, past, present, future. Be desperate for God's future sovereign grace, okay? And so if we can stay rooted past, present, and future in God's grace, His sovereign grace, it'll, it'll anchor you. It'll steady you through life. So let's dive in. How does the psalmist teach me to pray when I'm wondering why I'm suffering? First, recount God's past sovereign grace. And first, I want you to see with me, if you have your Bible open on your app, there, I think there are some Bibles in front of you if you want to look with me. Try to find Psalm 44, especially because we don't have slides today. Uh, I want you to see how the psalmist recounts God's past sovereign grace. And in verse 1, it says, Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us. So right there, didn't plan this. There's a call to fathers on Father's Day. How do we recount? We need to be talking about how God has worked in the past. Something has to literally sound waves that represent words of God's stories and the stories of even Israel and scripture and God's faithfulness in your own life as well need to enter our ears and and get processed in our minds and come down and, and hit our emotions. There's no substitute for talking about what God has done and for being encouraged by others' testimonies. We begin with scripture. And even for the church today, Israel's stories of being redeemed from Egypt, being brought through the wilderness, being brought through the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan, taking a hold of that literal geopolitical uh, promised land that is a foreshadow to the new creation that Christ followers are looking forward to. All these stories, beginning with the Bible stories, and all the saints were to keep telling them and listening to them. And, and so... And here all the more, a call to fathers to be telling these stories. This could be literal flesh-and blood fathers, it could be spiritual fathers, father-like figures, but in the church that we would encourage that men rise up and, and be the spiritual leaders to keep telling of these testimonies of God. But not only to others, I need to keep preaching the gospel to myself. I need to keep proclaiming God's goodness to myself. I need to tell of how God delivered Israel from Pharaoh's grip in Egypt to myself. I need to tell the next generation of how God sent his son Jesus to the earth. I need to keep a personal, intimate relationship with my wife and children and tell them stories of how God has been real to me in my life, but not only my flesh and blood family, our spiritual family, our friends, Whatever, your new community, your small groups. And what's at the heart of these stories, in verse 2, look with me. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them, God's people, God planted. You, God, afflicted the peoples, but them, God's people, you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their... Own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. How do I find comfort when I'm confused about my suffering? The psalmist teaches us first. He starts off this prayer recounting God's past sovereign grace and how God was at the center of all that. The theme of our testimonies, our stories that we tell each other must be an utter dependence on God. Don't forget, the psalmist here is fully acknowledging his people, his history. Israel had their part. They had to do their part. They had to go out and fight their fights and, and do, put into action what they were called to do. But isn't it astounding that even though they physically did their part, they had their effort, they had to sweat their own sweat and shed their own blood and toiled with their own energy, and yet the final explanation is,
2: God did these things, not by my own arm. And I love that the psalmist remembers, recounts, in the past,
1: you delighted in them. The theme of our testimonies must also be our belovedness. And now for us, as the In the new covenant, as the church, our belovedness in Christ, God's sheer favor and grace. So I love how Matthew Henry reflects on this. Former experiences of God's power and goodness are strong supports to faith and powerful pleas and prayer under present calamities. The many victories Israel obtained were not by their own strength or merit, but by God's favor and free grace. And so I, inspired by my own study in Psalm 44 this week, I I just this week started a new tradition in our home with my kids. And once a week, ask dad anything about his past, free card. (laughs) But my point is, my intent is to somehow connect the dots to God's faithfulness in my life. I'll start with real stories from my life, maybe even some mistakes and sins, but how God has been good to me in Christ and been redeeming me. That doesn't have to only be a family thing. Maybe in your growing friendships, you can put that out there. Hey, I, I, this is random, but you can ask me anything. But just, it's just an opportunity to talk about how God has been working. Now, moving on then. How does the psalmist teach me to pray when I'm wondering why I'm suffering? Next, feel intimately safe in God's present sovereign grace. Present. First, notice how the psalmist in the present continues to anchor himself. He anchored himself by recounting the past, but now also in the present, he continues to dig down, to to throw down the anchor of staying just steadfast, to steady his heart and mind, his emotions, his thoughts, in God's present sovereign grace. And so here in the present, when you're triggered by that driver or whatever circumstance or something someone said, something is triggered, anger, hurt, whatever anxieties, depression, whatever, however you're triggered in the present, like the psalmist, we need to learn to talk back to your emotions and wrong thoughts. It's maturity to be able to let the Holy Spirit And your own will in partnering keeping step with the Holy Spirit counsel yourself with Scripture in the present in the moment the psalmist models us models this for us in verse 4 he recounted the past and then there's a clear break to the present verse 4 you are my king this you weren't only king of my people in the past but right now in this moment as I'm praying to you the psalmist says you are my king Oh God Ordain salvation for Jacob. And there, in the psalmist saying, ordain salvation for Jacob. Just that phrase, for Jacob, he's anchoring himself in God's word, in God's promises to his forefather, Jacob. Re- re- his reference to Jacob is, is a reference to, I'm anchoring myself in your present promises that carry on to your people. What a confident declaration in the present, in the moment. You are my king. Do you talk to God that way during the day? Do you preach to your own soul that way regularly? In the present, have you developed that that discipline, that step, when you feel triggered by life, that you talk back to your emotions and your thoughts,
2: all the more with Scripture? Scripture? And staying anchored in God's present grace. Now, notice how this translates into the psalm's perspective on success. In verse
1: 5, he picks up on a riff from the first four, three verses. And, and he goes on to say, through you. But he now says, in the present. Yes, in the past. His people had success by God's help depending on them, but now in the present, through you, we push down. That's present, not the past. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. Again, present. For not in my bow do I trust, present. Nor can my sword save me, present. In God, we have boasted continually. And there, too, it might sound like in the past, but the continually means in the present, ongoingly, in real time. And we will give thanks to your name forever. So in the present, into perpetuity. The bottom line is that certainly we need to do our part. We push down, but then the greater point, through you, through your name. Now, I want you to be encouraged by how intimately safe the psalmist feels to be honest in God's present sovereign grace. As you stay in the present, in God's grace, then a wonderful benefit is that you're to feel that you can be completely honest and bare before God. Because after he anchors himself in the present, in God's sovereign grace, in verse 9, look how real and raw and honest he is. About how dejected he feels. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. Those are strong words. You have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have made us, verse 13, the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. How many people can you be this honest about how you feel too? My overall experience is most people don't like being exposed. Most people don't like other people sharing their own news. Most people don't like being thrown under the bus, and I get that. But what's under all that is is because we don't want to feel some shame. And yet here, the psalmist, he bears everything
2: before the Lord in utter honesty. Goes on. And he
1: even says, he's he's making... An argument before the Lord kind of like Job all this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you the psalmist has the audacity to say look God as far as I know I'm genuinely in the right here I don't know why this suffering is happening to me he goes on to say in verse 17 we have not been false to your covenant our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way And to almost cover his bases, he says in verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now we'll see later on in the sermon that Paul the apostle validates the psalmist because he quotes this psalm and in effect, he validates the psalmist was right before God in a right standing. And so his confusion was legitimate. Why is this happening to me? So can we say with the psalmist, we have not forgotten the Lord? We have not been false to covenant with God in Christ. Doing our part in the new covenant? Can we say with the psalmist, our heart has not turned back, our steps have not departed from his way? So, again, Matthew Henry, very helpful. Just trying to understand and wrap my mind around this psalm. Listen to his reflection on these verses. The believer must have times of temptation, affliction, and discouragement, the church must have seasons of persecution. At such times, the people of God will be ready to fear that he has cast them off and that his name and truth will be dishonored. But they should look above the instruments of their own trouble, the temptations, the struggles, the suffering. They should look above those things to God, well knowing that their worst enemies have no power against them except for what is permitted from above. And so this is why we need to turn to the third and last point. How does the psalmist teach us to pray when we're wondering why we're suffering? We need to be desperate. Yes, desperate. For God's future sovereign grace. Now where do we see this in the text? We jump down to verse 23. And... The psalmist here is feeling really safe. This is how intimately safe he feels in his personal relationship with God. Listen to verse 23. This is him talking to God, mere human being addressing the Lord Almighty, creator of the universe. Awake! In fact, I would scream it louder (laughs) because the tone here is is, screaming. Screaming. Why are you sleeping, O oh Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. This is how he ends this prayer. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And we ever rush through scripture, as we meditate on God's law day and night, we need to let it wash over us, just trickle down into our thoughts, our understanding, our emotions, and so it shouldn't be lost on us to miss the audacity of the psalmist here. Have you ever commanded God, let alone commanded God to wake up? Look, I can command and man my children to wake up, I'm their father, they still live under my roof. My wife and I provide for them. Intuitively, my conscience says that the psalmist is
2: inappropriate here. But we're never called to be more holy than what scripture calls us to be.
1: And this is how intimately safe the Holy Spirit via the inspired psalmist is giving us permission to be honest with God. And so first, one uh, practical application that, that shouldn't be uh, that we shouldn't miss. This is how great and compassionate our God is. He's not like the temperamental husband or wife who lashes out because their sensitive ego is hurt by a zinger, making the situation even worse, or a friend whose sensitive ego is hurt. No God is the epitome of the bigger heart in his covenantal relationship with his people, especially on our lesser days. He's the epitome of the bigger heart. And so we can't miss the pattern of prayer here. The, the psalmist notice he intentionally begins first praising God, In that way he checks his heart first. I'm going to recount everything good of God and his past sovereign grace. Affirming God's good character, His promises, and this lines straight up with Paul's uh, instruction in Philippians chapter three, verse six: "Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving." There's meant to be praise and thanksgiving that preambles all our prayers and supplications, and this lines up with our Lord's teaching on prayer. Disciples asked Him, "Teach us to pray." And what did Jesus himself teach? He said, he began, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It begins with praise of the Father, basking in his Father's love as his beloved, exalting and adoring his name, hoping confidently in the dignity, glory, and victory of his kingdom, and then making our needs known. Give us today our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, etc. And so the psalmist here is right in line with the, the, the good pattern of prayer that the rest of Scripture prescribes as well. The psalmist is good, wise, and, and his example is tender. He's so honest. But what he models for us is staying anchored in God's past and present sovereign grace. Even while the Spirit gives us permission through the psalmist to speak desperately to God. To have our moment, so to speak, before God. To vent, to wonder where God is in our suffering. Now there's a beautiful irony here. God, he has the bigger heart. He's able to take this this venting, this moment of the psalmist, and he even obliges. A psalmist, almost like a child, wake up.
2: Where are you, God? Are you asleep? Where are you? Wake up. And what's the beautiful irony? One day, three days after Jesus was crucified, God did wake up, Jesus resurrected.
1: His resurrection is the ultimate answer to the psalmist wondering why I'm confused by my suffering. Jesus' awaking from the dead is the one true
2: ultimate answer to the psalmist's suffering and yours and mine. Who knows how our days will end in terms of pain and suffering while we're on this earth?
1: But what is certain and so worth it is that this short and passing temporary suffering here, it pales in comparison to being welcomed home and having the Lord himself wipe away your
2: tears. And once and for all, guaranteeing you no more suffering, no more pain. The late Tim Keller, he said many wise things and
1: Spirit gave him lots of wisdom. And one thing that's always stuck with me of what he said was look, we might never, God might never give us the answer why
2: for our suffering. But what we can know for certain is that he loves us. Why? Because Jesus suffered on the cross for you and me because Jesus died so that
1: we might not have to suffer, even if we never know why, that we, might, we will never have to suffer. We never have to be uncertain about the fact that God loves us. The psalmist, he can be desperately honest to God with demands for God to wake up because in the depths of the psalmist's heart is a more supreme and final affection. Come to our help, he ends. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love.
2: That's all in the risen Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, the psalmist is hoping for the future reign
1: of your messianic kingdom that all the wrongs he sees as he looks out onto the world that you will one day truly and finally and justly and righteously correct. And we thank
2: you that Jesus is the epitome, the culmination, the beginning and the end
1: of all the hope and comfort and justice and love that all our hearts long for. Lord, I pray especially for those who might be confused about their suffering today that you would help them to pray along with the psalmist, staying anchored in recounting your past sovereign grace and in the present with the psalmist being able to speak to emotions and thoughts that race through our being even as we keep looking forward.
2: And we can look forward with hope because you have awoken. You have raised your son from the dead. So fill our hearts with the hope that comes from Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.